Welcome to A Survivor's Guide to Help, where we challenge our listeners to take a closer look at the bright side of things. Negative news media can shape the world around you. Did you know that stories on crime and suicide are followed by an elevated crime and suicide rate? Between the politics, contention, and sensationalized stories, it's much easier to find bad news than good news. At Survivor's Guide to Hell, we want to turn that around. Each week, we select a difficult topic, then use that theme to help you laugh, help you find a bright side, or even change your perspective for the better. We want to help improve your mood, your character, and your mental health with a healthy dose of silver linings. We're honored to have you as our guest. Today, our unpleasant topic is... Being on the brink. I think the word brink gets taken for granted sometimes. It's one of those words you only hear in a popular phrase. In this case, on the brink. On the brink is usually whipped out in slightly cliched movie synopses or book jacket blurbs, and only to describe when things are going wrong. A world on the brink of destruction. A professor on the brink of insanity. A community on the brink of violence. According to Oxford Languages, the brink is, quote, an extreme edge of land before a steep or vertical slope, unquote. When I read the words, the extreme edge, I don't get the sense of impending doom. Rather, I feel a faint tickle of exhilaration. The extreme edge is no cocktail bar for easygoers and average strength hearts, it's more like that bush and bramble shelter made by the men and women whose love for survival is only outmeasured by a desperate kind of curiosity, a gnawing hunger for innovation, or a potentially deadly craving for success. There, in the fringes of what we can endure, right on the precipice of sanity and insanity, lives an elusive kind of euphoria. Today, we're talking about being on the brink. We won't ignore the pit on the other side. That steep vertical slope that ends in rolling lava, toothy rocks, grappling zombie hands, or whatever your version of doom is. However, we plan to keep our feet firmly on the higher side of things as we share our stories with you today. First, we'll introduce you to Lois and Lump, two curly-headed toddlers marooned in the United States in 1912. They didn't speak a word of English, and soon had their pictures scattered across American newspapers in a desperate search for their mother. Then we'll talk about the lesser known details of Flavian Carvalho, the restaurant manager that spotted some unusual details at a dinner guest table and may have saved a life because of it. Gather your grappling hooks, your harnesses, and whatever faith you have left, everybody. We're visiting the brink. Act 1. The story of Michelle and Edmund Navratil. Toddler Survivors in Search of Their Mother In France, 1912, a man was having marital issues. His name was Michel Navratil, and he was a Slovakian immigrant living with his wife, Marcella Corrado. Michel was incredibly handsome, with sweetly carved cheekbones, a well-cut chin, and eyes that spoke of both warmth and sadness. But Mr. Navratil's looks weren't enough to keep his family's tailoring business afloat, nor his marriage. 
When his sons, Michel Jr. and Edmund, were only toddlers, he separated from his wife Marcella after claiming she'd had an affair. Marcella kept the children. Michel, as you can imagine, became a troubled man. He'd affectionately called his sons Lolo and Maman, and had probably grown accustomed to their chubby faces and round eyes bobbing about his home, their incredibly curly hair bouncing over their foreheads as they tumbled about. When you're used to the sounds of two little boys crashing around the floor, an empty home can feel abruptly and unbearably silent. Luckily for him, his estranged wife agreed to let him take the boys for Easter weekend. As she parted with little Lolo and Maman, she had no idea they'd be long gone by the time she returned. Michelle had plans for his boys, and they didn't involve staying in France with a single mother. With some help from his friend, Lois Hoffman, Michelle left France with the little ones and bought a second-class ticket aboard a promising new sea craft, the Titanic. Rather than signing Michelle on the Titanic rosters, the single father signed the name of Louis Hoffman and added his boys as Lolo and Maman. They were America-bound. Though Michelle Jr., or Lolo, was only three, his memories of the event were surprisingly detailed. I remember looking down the length of the hull, he said. The ship looked splendid. My brother and I played on the forward deck and were thrilled to be there. Magnificent it was. Lifeboats swayed from their perches along the side of the deck, pearly white, even quaint. Numerous chairs and benches lined different structures of the boat, beckoning for its passengers to rest their travel-weary legs and study the pleasant sea they'd be traversing. The sound of water on the ship's hull offered a highway to the promised land of America. Lola would stare at that ocean from behind his egg breakfast, little legs hanging above the tiled floor of the second-class dining room. The place was brimming with white tablecloths, glass vases, and hungry patrons. As the chatter of his fellow passengers danced about the room, Lola was overcome with a feeling of well-being. The next part of the story has been told countless times in books, movies, articles. There was an iceberg, a collision, then there was water. Titanic, which was supposed to be famed for its glamour and ingenuity, was now earning a far more permanent fame. The unsinkable boat that would drift to the bottom of the glacial ocean and take over 1,500 souls with it. Well over half the passengers would meet their end in the dark, briny expanse that night. This may have been the only point in the journey where it was fortunate that Lolo and Momo's mother did not know where the boys were or what their surroundings were like. They were only little ones with their chubby-cheeked grins and sweet, naive trust of the world. To imagine them thrown in the cacophony of a foreign ship as it sank into a cold, deadly darkness is too much to ask any parent. Michelle and a stranger entered the little boys' quarters and roused them. My father entered our cabin where we were sleeping, Lolo described. He dressed me very warmly and took me in his arms. A stranger did the same for my brother. When I think of it now, I am very moved. They knew they were going to die. The boys were taken to the ship's deck, where passengers looked longingly or fought doggedly to obtain a priceless seat on a lifeboat. A ring of men surrounded the final vessel, arms locked together to prevent anyone but women and children from passing through. 
Michel Navril handed his boys through the ring. Lolo listened to his father's voice. One more time, as Michel offered a final message. My child, when your mother comes for you, as she surely will, tell her that I loved her dearly and still do. Tell her I expected her to follow us so that we might all live happily together in the peace and freedom of the new world. After ensuring his children, his immeasurably precious Lolo and Maman were warmly dressed and safely placed, Michel finally left his toddler's sides for the final time. He would not survive the night, but thanks to him, Lolo and Maman would. Eventually, after changing hands and switching boats, the toddlers arrived in the new world where their father had intended them to be. The boys spoke no English and only a timid toddler version of French. As pictures were taken and an attempt to find their guardian ensued, the children were quickly misidentified. One article called them Lois and Lola. Another displayed a picture of them stating they are Lois, four and a half, and Lump, a year younger. Luckily, a French-speaking woman and fellow survivor volunteered to care for them as the search effort continued. However, the odds of this Lois and Lump ever seeing a parent again was staggeringly small. A newspaper from the time wrote, Who are the two little French boys that were dropped from the deck of the sinking Titanic into the arms of survivors in a lifeboat? From which place in France did they come, and to which place in the New World were they bound? There is not one iota of information to be had as to the identity of the waifs of the deep, the orphans of the Titanic. But the little ones would not remain orphans. Somehow, a French newspaper with their photo reached Marcella, who still had no idea that her children had been aboard the ill-fated ship. When she saw their image, she boarded a ship herself and successfully retrieved her most precious cargo. Claire O'Neill, writing for NPR, stated, Had Madame Navratil been on Twitter, might she have found her boy sooner? At the time, it was probably no short of a miracle that Lois and Lump survived a kidnapping, the sinking of the Titanic, America with no English, and that they finally saw their mother again, no doubt having little understanding of all that had just happened. Michelle Jr. and Edmund, the beloved Lolo and Mamon of the Titanic, had much life left ahead of them. Edmund married and became an architect. He would fight for France in World War II and be captured by enemy forces. Ever the survivor, he escaped the POW camp and successfully returned home. Unfortunately, the war would take a toll on the man's health. Edmund, who'd lived through the sinking Titanic and a POW camp, died in the early 1950s at age 43. Michel Jr. married as well earned his doctorate, and became a professor of philosophy. He, as well as one other survivor, would live to have a special viewing of the 1997 Titanic film. His daughter would watch with him and say he was touched by what he saw. Michelle passed away in 2001, at the long age of 92. He and his brother had peered over the brink of death, then found their way back into their mother's arms. Marcella had her own brink, one that threatened to steal her children for good, but failed. Monsieur Michel found a different slope. He crossed over it. His final act was saving his children. Act 2. Flavian Carvalho and the Boy at the Table. 
How a restaurant manager used a secret note to save a life. Sometimes a silver lining is only as powerful as its dark and fearsome surroundings, and this story was about as close to surviving hell as it gets. A warning to our tender-hearted listeners, the following tale contains depictions of severe child abuse. Don't worry, there is a happy ending. That's why it's here. At age 45, with two children and a managerial position at a restaurant, Flavian Carvalho sounds like, well, a lot of people. She spends much of her time at work, helping customers, organizing employees, and overseeing dozens of tables bedecked with steaks, fries, Brazilian-style desserts, and lots of different kinds of potatoes. Her workplace comes with high ratings and a whimsical feeling. One wall of shelves is thronged with a crowd of Mr. and Mrs. Potato Heads, some donning Star Wars outfits, others covered in silly accessories, and a few so small you might expect to see them in your stew. It was here, at the Mrs. Potato Restaurant of Orlando, where Carvalho made her living. Like most restaurants, Mrs. Potato saw many unique customers. There was the man from the Food Network, Guy Fieri, who dropped by to do a show. There's the woman who lauded the garlic sauce, there's the folks that take pictures of every dish, and that one guy who complained that he was discriminated against because he didn't look Latin American enough. Then there was Kristen Swan and Timothy Wilson. The night the couple visited Mrs. Potato, Mr. Wilson's round face was wreathed in a thin, wiry scarf of facial hair that looked as if it had migrated from the balding patch on his head. Mrs. Swan's thick face looked even broader, with her dyed hair pulled back in a slick ponytail, spaghetti straps sinking into her soft shoulders. They were a big couple, extra large in restaurant terms, but the little boy and girl that trailed behind them were not. The boy looked especially small with knobby knees and an emaciated face hidden behind his mask and glasses. When Mr. Wilson placed his order, he didn't request any food for his 11-year-old stepson. He'll eat at home, Wilson explained. Flavian Carvalho watched the disproportionate family tuck into their meals, every one of them, except the little boy. He sat in front of a patch of empty table, nearly disappearing into his hoodie, while his family dined without him. Carvalho had worked in this restaurant long enough to know that, despite the burly father's excuse for the missing meal, this was not a normal thing. As inconspicuous as she could manage, Carvalho studied the boy's face. Though almost completely lost in the hoodie, glasses, and mask, the woman could see a scratch and some bruises spilling around his eyes. Something was not right. To interfere with this family could be detrimental. False allegations of violence against a child have caused many parents to lose their children, temporarily or permanently, even if they're eventually found innocent. Reputations have been decimated. Marriages have been ruined. What if this boy had done something naughty and awful and ended up hurting himself? What if his punishment was to eat a full plate of leftovers at home, instead of getting treated to a restaurant meal? If Carvalho was going to cry wolf, she wanted to be damn sure there was a wolf. But if the family left, which they might do very soon, this little boy would be beyond her help if he needed it. To Carvalho, the brink she was stepping on seemed to be getting steeper every moment she looked at the black and blue speckled child. The manager retrieved a pen and paper and placed herself in the boy's line of sight, making sure his parents couldn't see. Are you okay? She wrote, showing the note to the boy. He nodded. This default answer wasn't good enough for Carvalho. 
Through the din of clanking plates, chattering utensils, and talking customers, she wrote another message. Sure? Another nod from the boy's bruised head. Carvalho, perhaps thinking of her own beloved children, decided the situation deserved one more check. The family would probably be leaving in 10 to 15 minutes, and she knew she was running out of time. Do you need help, she wrote. The boy briefly crossed his arms, cradling himself. Then he gave her a final nod. Carvalho called the police. Do you need the police or the paramedics there? Um, I don't know. I need you. I, I don't know what to do. We, I'm a manager of a restaurant, and okay. we have some customers here with two kids. One of the kids is with a lot of bruises on his arms and on his uh, face. Okay. And the parent is not done uh, giving food for him, but is giving to the another kid that are with them. And uh, the one is so quiet, and I ask him on a paper if he needs help. And first, he uh, turned his head saying that no, but he keep looking at me, and I write in another paper if he needs help again, and he uh, make me a sign that yes, he needs help, so I don't know what to do. Okay, so are they at the restaurant right now? Yes. Okay, what's the name of the place? It's Mrs. Potato Restaurant. This is Potato Restaurant? Mrs. Potato, uh-huh. Minutes later, uniformed officers passed through the door of Mrs. Potato and arrested Wilson and Swan. When law enforcement began investigating the case, what they discovered would, according to a news source, be enough to bring the lead detective to tears. This boy was 20 pounds underweight. They had thought he was 8 years old when he was really 11. His skin was a blanket of bruises and other wounds. After some encouragement, the boy explained his home life. There were beatings, closed fists, broom handles, and back scratchers had all been some of his stepfather's recent weapons of choice. When the child displeased his stepfather, Mr. Wilson might strap him to a dolly, handcuff him to furniture, or hang the boy upside down in a doorframe. Gratefully, Wilson and Swan's daughter seemed unharmed. It appeared that Wilson had singled out the boy, because he wasn't his biological child. As investigators continued to question, the boy complained of chest pain. It caused him visible discomfort just to pull up his sleeve and show police the injuries on his arm. Mr. Wilson, his father figure gone tormentor, was 360 pounds. The boy was only 60. Professionals dealing with the case concluded that, had the boy been left with his family, his most likely outcome was death. A frenzy of media attention followed Carvalho after she called the police and rescued her poor, unfed dinner guest and his sister. She was dubbed a hero, a comment that Carvalho deflected, insisting that the little boy was the real hero. She received cards and flowers, her daily schedule became crowded with interviews, and people began sending money to celebrate her good deed. Soon, the donations would reach nearly $46,000. Meanwhile, the little boy from the restaurant had been taken from nearly everything familiar to him and was facing several months of physical recovery and several decades of emotional recovery. The child was doubtlessly on her mind, 
a little injured bird lost in the flock of goodwill that Carvalho was flying in. She began receiving calls and other messages from child abuse survivors telling her that they wished someone had spoken out for them when they needed it most. With memories of the little boy and the survivor's messages, Carvalho's abrupt introduction to fame was riddled with the heaviness of a new reality. It was a reality where child abuse ran rampant and where the injuries stretch much farther than most of our imaginations will let us go. It wasn't long after the night at Mrs. Potato that Carvalho's birthday arrived. She was about $40,000 richer at that point. Her home was a veritable garden of flower bouquets, and she had plenty of folks to wish her well. Her favorite gift, however, had nothing to do with popularity or money. It was a message from investigators, letting her know that the boy from the restaurant was doing well. I'm happy for him, Carvalho said. It just warms my heart that now he has a better chance in life, and he's being treated well and feeling love and being taken care of. Carvalho plans on keeping in touch with the boy. And thanks to her experience at Mrs. Potato, and spurred by the words of the survivors, Carvalho is now raising funds for the Flavian Carvalho Foundation, dedicated to training participants to recognize signs of child abuse. Thanks to her glimpse of the brink, the woman is changing from a mere restaurant manager to an agent for humanity. As for the boy, he's a testament that there's always hope for escaping our darkest chapters of life, and that even little guys can be tough as lead. Way to escape the brink, buddy. That's the end of today's stories. Now we invite you to join us for our weekly Silver Liners Challenge, which is designed to be an easy, actionable step that you can take to help boost your week and help you survive hell. Here it is, the Silver Liners Challenge. Odds are you've had some incredible trials in your life. Perhaps you're at the edge of a brink right now. Take a moment to ponder what there is to learn or to gain from your visit to the cliff's edge. Feel free to share your experiences in the comments of our website, survivorsguidetohell.com, or on our Facebook page. If you would like to see the videos and pictures that often accompany our posts, like a photo of Lolo and Maman, check out our website at survivorsguidetohell.com, where you'll also find much more information, including our storytelling code of ethics. We're always looking for new silver linings to broadcast. If you have something to share, please visit our site and drop us a line. And remember, if you liked this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, and other streaming platforms. When you subscribe, you no longer have to go searching for episodes. They'll be delivered right to the place you listen to your podcasts. Simply open the app or website that you use, find our podcast, and click the subscribe button. You'll also be helping to support us as we spread our good vibes. If you like Survivor's Guide to Hell and would like to contribute some fuel for our fire, then you're already on the right track. Just listening is the best thing you can do. We'd also love to hear your feedback by getting your review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Giving a review helps folks find us and helps us to know what we can do to give you a better show. Last but not least, our cheesy joke of the week. Why did Mr. Potato Head's dry cleaning service go out of business? He always used too much starch. Thank you and have an excellent Monday.